going to be going through uh, verses 18 through 31. Um, Pastor Joel pur- purposely lightly touched this portion of the, uh, of the chapter. Just an insight, I guess, from a, um, a preacher's mind is uh, if you've got a topic that's going to overlap, it kind of takes the fire away from the preacher when the prior preacher is a good preacher and then is going to preach on the same thing you're going to be talking about. Because then when you get up, it's pretty much um, just rewatch the video and I'm done. So we had a phone call, actually, because I actually panicked a little bit because I started my study a little bit late, not going to lie. And uh, it was probably a few days before he was going to preach. I'm like, hey, so what are you going to preach on? And then he's, he was already on top of it. He's like, yep, I already saw that. He's like, oh, he's like, purposely going to be touching on that lightly. And so I felt a lot better. So um, he purposely, I don't, maybe as a favor for me, didn't uh, touch verses 18 to 31 that much, just kind of lightly went over it. So I'm going to go ahead and read those, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. Uh, God, I thank you again for the opportunity just to go through your word and Lord, I pray that we would be humble before you today. God, I pray your spirit's power would be um, just open and obvious, Lord. God, and I pray that we'd have hearts that are ready to receive your truths. And God, that we would submit to you, Lord, the things you tell us that we need to do. You name I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, since it's been a couple weeks, just to restate some of the context of what was taking place in 1 Corinthians. Um, during that time at Corinth, and really a couple hundred years before and even after that, one of the big things that was popular among Greeks and Romans was the idea of having great speeches, philosophy. And so there'd be people even from childhood that would be trained up to be orators, people who were really good at the art of debating. They would give up, give some strong speeches about why they believe what they believe, sometimes have public arguments. And so then these people would get followings. Some people would pledge allegiance to one speaker. Some people would pledge allegiance to another speaker. And so with that context in mind, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that some of you were you're being divided. He's like, some of you say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollo. Some say that I'm of Jesus. And you can see that they were taking some of what they were seeing in their culture and allowing it to affect their churches, that same mindset of worldly wisdom, and then trying to pick, in a way you might say, their heroes. And this was causing division within the church. And so Paul goes on to do something to help them understand the folly of human wisdom. He shows them that this is not how they receive the gospel. And so he explains that there's actually two different groups of people in mind here. Verse number 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, 
but unto, which are, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. Um, in the Greek, it literally renders those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And some people get stuck up on that. And they're like, what do you mean that we're being saved? Aren't we saved already? Well, yes, we are. But we have to remember that salvation isn't just our justification. We were saved in a point of time when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our sins were forgiven and we were justified. But then we move into the process of sanctification where we become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, we're still being saved and still not yet completely saved because we're also waiting for the time we become exactly made into the image of Christ. When sin is erased from our body and we have a new glorified body and we are fully made into his image. So in a sense, we are saved. In a sense, we are still being saved. So he breaks up two groups of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And because of the culture and because of what was going on and what was trending at that time, he wanted to let those who know, those who were being saved, those who had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that it wasn't worldly wisdom that got them there. So then I'm not going to touch on this too much because Joel already covered it, but Isaiah 29, 14, he, he gives an illustration. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And I'm going to go ahead and, and read the, uh, I guess, in context, the full verses from 10 to 14 says, For the Lord hath poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rules, the seers hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot read, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learning, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Whoever the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. That's really, really strong there as far as the application of worldly wisdom. The fear of God that they knew wasn't true fear. It was actually the fear that was taught by men. It says, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of, the, of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us, and who knoweth us? So in context, what's going on, of course, you know, Joel covered this, but Jerusalem is under siege, and of course, they are panicking a little bit because they're about to be run over, at least they think they are. And so God completely shows the folly of human wisdom because, of course, the sieging armies were thinking that they were going to have great victory because of the massive army that they have. And I'm sure those in Jerusalem who were the military leaders and the wise men of the city, they were thinking on their side, okay, what strategy do we have to have in order to have this victory? And God says, I'm going to show that all of this is foolishness. It's not going to be by your wisdom or by your strategy, but I'm going to do a marvelous work among you. And he gives them a deliverance, but not because of what would seem as the natural thing that would happen. It's not some movie we might think, okay, they're going to be some kind of awesome strategy here, and they're going to trick them, and they're going to defeat the army. No. God made foolishness the wisdom of men. It kind of reminds me of a passage you see in uh, Matthew eleven twenty five. In context, Jesus is really condemning the cities that refuse to repent. It said, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, had to reveal them unto babes. The truth is, no one has ever known Jesus Christ because of their own wisdom. It's never been because of the worldly wisdom that's around. And so those who try to seek Christ or try to seek God with corrupt human wisdom will never find him. It's those who humble themselves. Those who have the Spirit of God working the heart and opening their eyes. So then he, said, he shows us that human wisdom will never find salvation. 
Now, I want you to think about the fall, what human wisdom has brought us. Things were made in a perfect condition, but because of sin, the world is broken. I mean, it's very obvious. We can see it, the sin that's in the world, and we can see that we are also broken. And we've been trying to fix things, but we haven't been trying to fix things God's way. And I'm not saying there hasn't been advancements in technology. Of course, that's been there. But then we've taken advancements of technology, and we've found creative ways of killing more people. So we, we have this way of taking things that might be wisdom or knowledge and really twisting it into our own destruction. And we've been trying, even through philosophy and human wisdom today, of trying to make things better in society. And so we see that things are broken in our world, but we aren't trying to actually do things God's way. It's been over 6,000 years, and so with human wisdom, I'd have to ask, how are things going? Has the world gotten better? Are there still wars? Is there still hatred? Is there still racism? It exists. Why? It's because of human sin, but then why then as a church sometime, do we allow the world's wisdom to be the solution for the things we see in society? It's been broken for thousands of years, so why do we repeat trying to do the same things that have always failed? Is the gospel not enough? Is the grace of God not enough? Are his truths not enough? I think of especially the area of racism too, since it's been the forefront of our culture and things that have been going on in our country. As a church, we do have to acknowledge it, but is it wise as a church then to reach into philosophies that come from atheistic backgrounds? Critical race theory comes from a humanistic atheist background as its foundation. It doesn't leave room for reconciliation. It doesn't leave room for healing. And so while we do not deny racism as being as part of our country because it's part of the human state as we are all sinners, racism has existed from the beginning of time, but why do we go to philosophies that come from human wisdom? Why not biblical repentance? Why not the grace of God transforming lives? Why not Christ's love in our community? That is what will make a difference. So we see that what does make a difference is what's considered the foolishness of preaching. It says, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, the literally, literally, the Greek renders this as the foolishness of what is being proclaimed. So it's not actually that they thought preaching itself was foolish. And in fact, in the context, this wouldn't even make sense. Because if you think about the idea here, the people at this time loved public speakers. They thought it was great. That's why we were talking about they would flock to these public speakers to, to hear what they would have to say. In fact, if we go to Acts chapter 17, it, it, the story of Mars Hill, when, when Paul goes up, they, heard, they wanted Paul to come and speak because they heard he was some kind of new teaching. And these people always wanted to hear new arguments. So it wasn't the fact that they thought preaching itself was foolish. It is the content of what was being preached that they thought was foolish. They thought the gospel was foolish because it wasn't actually fitting in with their narrative. Verse number 22, so why is it considered foolish? Well, we hear, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. The Jews were constantly seeking after a sign, and they couldn't, they couldn't accept Christ because they didn't, well, they didn't want to. He didn't, Jesus, who he truly is, didn't fit what they wanted. They were expecting him to be this great king that would come and deliver them from the Romans and set up this kingdom where they would be over all the nations. And so they were thinking that they were going to be delivered from sinners, but Christ comes and he preaches a different message. He says, I am come to save you from your sin. 
For them, I gotta imagine, it's true, but it must have been like a slap in the face. Look at all these pagans that are oppressing us. We want deliverance from this. And Jesus says, well, I'm coming to you to deliver you from yourselves. You're the sinners. That's why it says that to them, Jesus was a stumbling block. He's not who that they wanted them to be. And of course, the Greeks also rejected Jesus Christ because they were approaching things in a matter of philosophy. So it was whatever is humanly, and by the way, very dynamic. Their thoughts change from time to time, very frequently, actually. So whatever is prevalent at the time is how they judged the world. There were some Greeks who saw anything that was spiritual as good, and anything that was the flesh was bad. So if you were to tell someone that Jesus, God, came in the flesh, they'd automatically say, nope, that can't be it. Because anything in the flesh is bad, and how could God become flesh? You go back to Acts 17, and uh, Paul's presenting his case about who Jesus was, trying to, he uses the illustration of the unknown God. He's saying, hey, you've been worshiping everything else, and you've been asking all these questions. I want to talk to you about the God you do not know yet. And he gets to the part of about the resurrection. And so for some of them, they said, no, nah, that, nah, that, that's too much. Some of them scoffed, some of them sneered, but then yet, some also believed. So people weren't trusting Christ the Jews weren't trusting Christ because he was a stumbling block. It, it wasn't the sign that they were looking for. And the, the Greeks weren't trusting Christ because it didn't fit their realm of human wisdom. But at the end of the day, it was all just a smokescreen. You see, the Jews said they rejected Christ because they wanted a sign. Well, let me ask, did Jesus give signs? Any? Did he ever turn the water into wine? Did he ever heal people publicly of diseases? Were there ever examples of people who had diseases who actually walked up and just touched Jesus and were healed? Did Jesus ever raise someone from the dead? Was he ever on a boat and commanded the weather to stop? Did he ever raise himself from the dead? Did he ever cast out demons? And yet this entire time the Jews are saying, if you would just show us a sign, we would believe. Do you see how ridiculous that is? It's like, well, I just raised the dead. Well, God, if you just, or Jesus, if you would just give us a sign, what else do you want me to do? Weather, stop. If you just give us a sign. It wasn't about the sign. Jesus proved emphatically, undeniably, that he was God. But Romans 1 tells us that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This wasn't the Jesus they wanted. God, Jesus showed them everything that needed to be shown, both from scriptures and both supernaturally, who he truly was, and yet they rejected him anyway. It was a smokescreen. Had nothing to do with the miracles. It had to do with what we see in, in the book of John. I believe it's uh, John 3 towards the latter portion of it talks about natural men hating the darkness, right? They didn't want to come to the darkness because then their deeds would be exposed and they would be shown for the sinners that they are. They didn't want that Jesus. Jesus, Jesus did provide signs, but he also provided accountability. He showed that he was the judge, so they rejected him. Well, now then the Greeks, on the other hand, the Greeks would reject Jesus. When, they, when it talks about Jews and Greeks, when it says Greeks, it's really meaning everybody else. So if you're not Jewish here, you're in this category. The Jews wanted the sign. The Greeks, well, they said, well, we'll seek, we'll seek Jesus through wisdom, through our philosophy. But here's the problem. After the fall, our human thinking became utterly corrupted. We don't find the truth because we're seeking truth with corrupt minds. And so their philosophy would change literally sometimes within, within one day. And they would be seeking out new truths, but these are truths that never would lead them to find God. And it's not that God has been hiding. Going back to Romans 1, every time they see something in nature, 
they should be acknowledging that there's a creator. But they don't see it. In fact, Jesus himself, while he was alive here on earth, he was really good at shutting down arguments in a very few words. It's amazing. I mean, you talk about like, the smartest people of the day, especially the religious community, would come up to him and, hey, Jesus, I got one that's going to stump you. And literally, he shut him up in about a sentence. <laughs> it wasn't an issue of wisdom. It's because people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I have to say that not much has changed today. There's a lot of people, and I've talked to people like this, you're giving them the gospel, or you're reading through certain passages of scriptures that aren't uncomfortable, and the thing I commonly hear, and it's very unfortunate, is they'll say, well, I don't feel God should be that way. I don't believe God would do this. And see, Romans 1 also discusses that man have turned creatures into gods. They became idol worshipers, and today we worship ourselves. So some people say, well, I'm not worshiping idols, but every time you make a comment that, well, I, I don't really believe that in the Bible. I believe God would be this way. You're setting up a false god. That is not the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. That's not the true Jesus to worship. And so people are worshiping really a God that they have made in their own image, as opposed to worshiping him for who he really is. And so in our pursuit of trying to worship a God with our own wisdom, we find that we don't end up worshiping the true God, the God that can save. We worship false idols. But we see that for those of us who know Christ, we recognize the gospel is true wisdom. Verse 24 says, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For, thus, for those of us who are saved, it's because there was a point in time the Holy Spirit opened our eyes. As I say at the last service, I think Pastor Joel says this pretty frequently, that without conviction, there's no salvation. The Holy Spirit of God's not working on someone's heart. They're not going to trust Jesus. It's not that they aren't choosing. They are, in fact, choosing. They're choosing not to trust Jesus because they don't want to. They don't see their sin for what it is. I mean, as of right now, I'm talking to my girls, you know, fairly regularly because they're getting older, and I know they understand, like, concepts of the gospel, correct? Like, we, we talk about the cross and sin and suffering and what salvation is, but then when I ask the questions, the more pressing questions about who they are as far as being sinners, and I can tell that's not, it's not clicking yet because it's not just something that's mental. It's it's the Spirit of God working in someone's life. Which is why we have to be very careful when we're giving the gospel to someone. To, it, it's, it could be easy, maybe, perhaps, to get someone just to say a prayer for salvation, but if there's, no conviction of, if there's no real conviction of sin, because it's not until the conviction of sin is brought about that we really see the need of a Savior. You're not asking to be safe for something if you don't believe it's really threatening you. That's what I'm getting at. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that will make that evident to us. But for us who know Christ, we realize that biblical salvation, the gospel, is true wisdom. But it's also something that out of humility should bring us together within uni like, with great unity. Verse number 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught 
things that are. Okay, so um, I'm going to use a phrase here that's abused in social media and on the news press, but I need to circle back. Um, I need to go back to what is found earlier in this passage to remind you, because sometimes as we're going verse by verse through the Bible, we forget the context of why we're at where we're at. So just as a reminder, there's been disunity within the church because they're following man-made wisdom. They're used to following certain speakers, and so now they're, now they're following Christian leaders and bringing about the same wisdom, which in this worldly wisdom is in fact bringing disunity. So he shows the folly of it by saying, okay, you weren't saved because of worldly wisdom. And I actually like what we see early on in 1 Corinthians, and you'll see this in a lot of uh, the Apostle Paul's letters, is very early on he'll talk about what they have in Jesus Christ, and then later on while he's rebuking them, showing them, remember what you have, you're not acting like you have it. And we have it in this case as well too. Verse number five says, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and all knowledge. So in a city where we've got these people who are obsessed with material gain, obsessed with really worldly pleasures, obsessed with this idea of having knowledge. He already told them up front before he begins to rebuke them, you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. He's like, but now there's arguments that are taking place within the church about who is following the greatest leader based on human standards, human perspective. And you'll see this word foolishness used over and over again. It comes from the Greek word moria, base word moros, English word moron. It's literally what it renders into. And so, not the kindest way to say it, but he's saying, the world, if you're a believer, looks at what you have, and they think you're morons. And now you're going to use the philosophy of the world that determines what you believe that would make you a moron, and you're going to bring this into the church to cause division. So according to human standards, corrupt human standards, you're a moron, and as a moron, you're going to be using now their standards to bring human wisdom into the church. Ouch. <laughs> really strong wordplay there. And if the Apostle Paul was here today, of course, he'd be doing a much better job than I would be. But every time he uses the word foolish and, wi foolish and wise, he'd probably be using air quotes. Because he's talking from a human perspective. From the worldly perspective, the gospel is foolish. From a worldly perspective, their wisdom is truly wise. So this entire passage is actually very heavily sarcastic. He's saying things actually the exact opposite of the way he means them. So let's go back to this verse again and read it. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Okay, so he says if you're seeking... If you're seeking the world's wisdom, if this is where you want your acceptance, so according to world the world's wisdom, you aren't wise, you're not mighty, you're not noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So you're not wise. God has chosen the weak things, you're weak of the world, to confound the things that are mighty, the base things. <laughs> he says you're base. Things of the world and things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. So if you're trying to seek after, if you're trying to seek using human wisdom, according to human wisdom, the way you receive the gospel, it makes you weak. It makes you stupid. You're not of noble birth. And yet, this is what you're embracing? It doesn't make any sense. But if you continue on, God says he's going to use the things that the world thinks are stupid to bring down what the world considers to be wise. 
He's going to use the things that the world considers to be great weakness to bring down what the, what, what the world considers to be great power. And I love the last one he talks about. He's going to bring about what the world thinks to be everything, or to actually be absolutely nothing, to take down what the world considers to be absolutely everything. It's like your, your motivation's really misplaced. You're following after a world system that takes your beliefs and calls you stupid with it. And yet God is going to take what they consider to be strength, what they consider to be wisdom, what they consider to be real power, and he's going to make it absolutely nothing. So we have something here that it's, again, it's encouraging in a sense, but it's also really, uh, it's almost humiliating. Because they're, they're so wrapped up in the wisdom that they're trying to pursue after, and he tells them, okay, well, you're acting like morons. But why? Why does this happen? Well, it's going to be because God wants us to show humility. So when we get to verse number 29, it says that no flesh should glory in his presence. In verse 30, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You have so much in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you have true wisdom. You have true power. You have true strength. The world looks at what you have and they think you're morons. But I have to say, the foolishness of what is preached, it isn't stupid. It's perceived as stupid by people who have corrupt minds because of sin. In fact, if we examine their worldview, it's interesting because even today they scream about the injustices that are going on in the world. They'll scream against things that we'll actually agree with. They'll say, that, oh, we need to end slavery. Absolutely, I agree, but it's only the Christian world, or not slavery, but racism and slavery too still exists. Why, according to their worldview, is it wrong? They make arguments, but they have no justification for any of it. If we're just stardust, if we're just part of a world that has no purpose and is just random order, how does an atheist, how does someone from a secular perspective say anyone has value and they should be treated any other way than what they are? As Christian, I have strong reason to say why I think those things are wrong. Because you were created in the image of God and you have true inherent value because you are an image bearer of who he is. Why is murder wrong? From the world's wisdom... They know because they are image bearers of God. They have the law of God written on their heart. They, they can sense that it's wrong. They see that it's broken, but they don't have any justification for why it's wrong. They come up with all kinds of creative ways of saying things, but ultimately it's just matter destroying matter. Who cares if one rock smashes into another? But from a Christian perspective, I have reason to say why murder is wrong. I have a God who condemns it and a God who says you have value. We actually have answers. And so while the world make, well, try to think that, okay, try to make us think that we're stupid, we're not. As Christians, we have the actually only coherent worldview that's functional. And quite honestly, they borrow from our worldview and they don't even know it. Because if they did, the world would be made up of nothing but absolute raging animals. But they're not. But we can't boast. Because the wisdom that we have, the power that we have, it all comes 
from Jesus Christ. That the beginning of verse number 30, actually talking about God giving, it, giving this to us. It says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus. So you have true riches, you have true value, you have true worth, you have true power, but it's all from God. It's all because of the grace of God. It's not something that you've earned. It's not something that you could do to have, got, to have gotten it. So while the world looks at what you have as being stupid, it's going to overthrow everything that they value in the end as Jesus is completing his work and as things are being restored. And yet we can't boast about any of it. It's not ours to brag about. We can rejoice in it, we can point, and we can give glory to God, but then where does that leave room for divisions within the church? As Paul says later on, what do you have that wasn't given to you? Sometimes we see someone else in the church who's been given a responsibility. I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had that opportunity. Well, it's not about you. God gave them the opportunity. Sometimes we might be tempted to lift ourselves up because God gives you an opportunity or puts you in a circumstance of life and don't realize that it was the grace of God that it was given to you. Where's the room for boasting? Where does that leave division? We have so much to be grateful for and so much that's been given to us, but we have nothing to brag about. There's no room for division in those in those matters. Yes, sometimes we are going to divide over doctrine and it's necessary. Sometimes we will divide for the purity of church because it's necessary, but we should never be dividing as a church because we're allowing worldly wisdom to come in and create divisions that shouldn't be there in the first place. Shouldn't be our perspective. Shouldn't be our prerogative. It should be about Jesus. That's why I like when the Apostle Paul starts getting to these verses. He lets them know right before he starts talking about the folly of human wisdom and how they receive the gospel that when he came, he only came and he preached Jesus. That is what he did. And Jesus does have a lot of depth. You could spend your entire life into the Bible and never get to the bottoms of the depth that we can find in Scripture and about our God because he is that great. And yet, he says, I don't need to go into human philosophy. I have enough with Jesus. Because it is the power of God that brings about salvation. And I really love this. He says that he is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is our wisdom in the sense that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is the beginning of the process where our mind is actually being restored and we start to get true wisdom. He is our righteousness because in his life he sowed righteousness by always doing what is right and fulfilling the requirements of the law. So when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your iniquity was put, your sin was put on his account and his righteousness was applied to your account. He is our sanctification because he took something that was dirty and vile, a rebel against God, and he set it aside for God because of what he did on the cross, and he is making you a masterpiece, restoring you into the image of Jesus Christ. He is our redemption because we deserve to go to hell because of the sins that we have committed, and yet he suffered hell on the cross so he can bring us in the presence of God in a place called heaven. He gave us everything of the opposite of what we deserve, and it is all because of God. So where is boasting? There's no room for it. And then Jeremiah verse, gets quoted in verse number 31, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So verses 23 through 24, and Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord who exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Paul finishes off this section 
You have divisions in the church because you're bringing in worldly wisdom, but according to that worldly wisdom, you're morons, but yet in Christ, you have everything that you need. Why do you keep holding on to worldly wisdom? Everything you have that's been given to you has been given to you by God, and you have those true riches because of him. So where is boasting? And then he ends with Jeremiah. Let him boast and that he knows me. We have a lot to rejoice in because we know God, and that is super encouraging, but that should also be super humbling because we realize that in our own sin nature, we deserve to go to hell because we were rebels against God. And if you are not saved today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are already under the wrath of God. But God died on the cross to pay for your sins. He lived that perfect life so that his righteousness could be placed on your account. And if you will repent of those sins, turn of them, and put your faith solely and trust in Jesus Christ, you will have true wisdom. You'll have true power. You'll have true value. All these things that the world values is, in, in the end is going to be destroyed, but all these things that, that people really think they want are the things that are going to disappear. You, you have the true the true item, you might say like the, the, the genuine peace in Jesus Christ, something that will last forever. But if you are saved today, can I tell you, while this is encouraging, please be humble. As Christians, we have so much to be thankful for. You have true wisdom. You have that sanctification. You have that redemption. You have everything, but it was nothing that you earned. It was given to you by God. I like the overall narrative that we see in Scripture that's that work that he started in us that he'll bring to completion. It's him that gives us the desire to work and do according to his good pleasure. Paul says that it was according to the power that works in him that he would strive. That power of God that mightily works in him. I also like in John 3, it talks about those who are of the light would come to the light so they can show that the deeds that they are done are actually being wrought by God. It's so, as Christians, it's so foolish to boast. So foolish to compare. Because anything that is good in our lives is what the grace of God is bringing about in our lives. It's not in and of ourselves. So we have a lot to rejoice over, but please also be humble. And if you start to see division, analyze where that division is coming from. Is this something that's coming in because of you're allowing worldly philosophies to come in? Because I promise you, while we're on this side of heaven, there's going to be constant conflict because we're still sinners. But I also know if we all focused on Jesus, those conflicts tend to disappear.